It's cool that our country recognizes and has set apart the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Uh, we recognize this uh, incredibly powerful relationship between mother and child. And as I've been uh, thinking about it, you know, it's all about relationship, isn't it? Our, our relationship with God, the whole Bible is about his desire to have a relationship with us. And um, it's kind of a shame that we have to set a particular day apart uh, because God tells us to honor our mothers and fathers. It's, uh, it's the law. It's his will. Um, and we take this day, and I know that it's, it's hard for some people to have a, a special day set apart because um, we lack that relationship with mother and child. We long for it. Um, so many things in our culture, in our, in our lives, have caused us to have broken relationships, broken homes. I know for me, Mother's Day was very hard for a really long time. I lost my mother at when I was nine years old. And uh, so it, this is not like my favorite day, or it wasn't for a long time. But uh, for the past 25 years, I've had a mom, that uh, a woman that I call mom, and it's been just a, a great blessing, and, and that relationship has sort of been restored. Um, one thing I want to encourage the moms to do is pray for your kids. It's the most important thing in your relationship is to take them before God. I really feel like I wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for my mother and her prayers. I think it's an answer to her prayers that I would be here today. Even though uh, she left when I was nine, God took her home. I know that she was faithful to pray. So um, what I want to talk about today is relationships. And I, this particular passage is John chapter 2. Uh, something that uh, I've read a bunch of times as, as I read through the Bible. And uh, every time I've gone through it, I've kind of just said, huh, well, you know, God hasn't really drawn me to it to, to dig deep into it. Just uh, kind of, okay, this is uh, the story of the first... Uh, Miraculous sign that Jesus performed in Cana. And I, and I just want to look at it today from the aspect, from the, from the point of view of relationships. Uh, not so much uh, any particular, uh, I don't want to go off on any particular tangent. As I've looked through commentaries and things, there's a lot of ways you can go with this and I never really saw them before, so it's been very interesting for me. I just want to share what, what I've seen. So, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then Jesus told them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside 
and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So a little background. It begins with the third day. On the third day, that doesn't necessarily mean Tuesday. Um, In the previous chapter, if you read through, John says, and the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. But this is the third day because they had to travel from where they were. This is sort of covers travel time. So on the third day of traveling, they finally get to Cana. Cana is a small town, kind of obscure. We don't really know exactly where it is now. Uh, It's about six miles north of Nazareth, give or take, a couple of miles. They have a couple of possible sites that it could be. So I'm wondering, since you've just called your disciples and you want to demonstrate to them a sign proving who you are, demonstrating that you are the Son of of God, why would you go to a wedding and change water into wine? I'm thinking, why why go to a small town? Why not go to a big city and say, a graveyard? Go to a funeral and raise someone from the dead. It seems like that would be a, a greater miracle. It would demonstrate more, but Jesus decides to go to a wedding. Jesus likes weddings. He likes uniting things. He likes making things new. Bob likes weddings. I almost didn't want to even continue speaking after Bob spoke this morning. He was so awesome. I said, what he said. (laughs) Because it really is. It's all about relationship and And you could just see the joy in his heart that was coming out from from experiencing this relationship with his new granddaughter, but also with God and praising God for this this gift. And I think that's what Jesus wants to show us here, that it's not just about big, great, wondrous signs. It's about building a relationship. And we have to start off a little slow sometimes, build some trust. I think if Jesus had gone right to a funeral and raised someone from the dead, his disciples would have been a little, a little frightened. Said, Whoa, this is, this is a little freaky. I think, I don't know if I can handle this. But Jesus knows us, and he knows what we can handle and what he wants us to learn first in our relationship with him. It says that Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. This is, uh, a lot of commentators feel that this is a, perhaps a, a sign that it was a, relatives' wedding. We're only about six miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, Mary's hometown. Uh, Cana is only mentioned a couple of times by John, and and he's the only one who mentions it. Um, Nathaniel, the disciple Nathaniel, this is actually his hometown, so it could have been one of his relatives, or uh, it could have been a cousin, or perhaps a brother and sister of Jesus. Uh, And they say this because Jesus was invited and his disciples were invited, so they really wanted him to be there, even if he had to bring his motley crew with him. It's interesting, as I was looking through this, that Mary is not mentioned by name. 
Um, John doesn't mention her by name at all in his gospel, nor does he mention himself. Um, and that speaks to me that sometimes in our relationships, it's not about us. Um, we need to take ourselves out of the picture, out of the story, and let Jesus shine. And that was, I'm sure, his purpose in writing this gospel. It says John, but it's not really about John, is it? So I want to look at the cast of characters. As, as I've read this in the past, it's just been, okay, Jesus did a miracle, he revealed his glory. And it's interesting to me that right at the beginning of this year, as I was reading through this, God put this passage on my heart to look at it, to, to get into it, to dig in, this time and, and not in the past. And uh, I couldn't quite figure out what he wanted me to do with it. I mean, I looked at other people's commentaries on it, but uh, as, I, as I prayed about it and, and contemplated and, and meditated on it, he said, look at the people. Put yourself in their shoes. Uh, what are the example that they're setting for us? And so the first example we have is that of Mary, his mother. And God knew that I would be teaching on Mother's Day. Uh, it certainly wasn't something I planned um, and uh, in light of the things that Rich has been talking about uh, for the past few weeks in our study in, in um, Matthew, uh, he talked about following, come follow Jesus. Uh, he talked about uh, Jesus' ministry of teaching and preaching and healing, working miracles. Um, and also communication was the last thing he talked about before he went uh, to Israel. And there's an interesting way that mothers communicate with their children. They don't have to say a lot. They just have to say it. And children, except when they get to be teenagers, they get it. And um, certainly husbands get it. Uh, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. In the Greek, it's literally, they have no wine. It's, it's something a mother would say. I hear things in the other room sometimes. There are dirty socks in the den. And everybody knows what that means. It's not just a statement of fact. It's, it, there are implications. Or, this garbage can is full. <laughs> so that speaks to me, too, that there is this relationship between Jesus and his mother. They know each other. Jesus knows exactly what Mary's saying. There is no wine. And uh, there, there are great implications in that statement. It's like showing up at church and having someone say, there is no coffee. Uh, even more drastic in this case, though, because it, at a wedding and in Israel, hospitality is key. It's high on the list. It, it would be a dishonor not to be able to take care of your guests. And a wedding in Israel at this time could last seven days. And to run out of wine, that's a big deal. In fact, so much so, there could have possibly been legal ramifications for running out of wine and not taking care of your guests, not being, providing them with the hospitality that they needed. 
and, and expected. And this is not a situation that's easily fixed, easily rectified. There is no wine. They couldn't just run out and buy more wine. Wine is a very labor, laborious process to, to produce and, um, and to stockpile. But Mary didn't freak out. Her example is she just took it to Jesus. She didn't react in a way, perhaps I would, this is outrageous. Who's responsible? She didn't immediately looking, go looking for fault. She wasn't a fault finder. She didn't whine. She said there is no whine. She didn't whine about not having any wine. Uh, that's another thing moms like to say. There is no wine. Ning. She didn't need to find out why there was no wine. And we face these kind of situations in our lives, big and small. We don't know why they happened. They just happened. And so the first thing to do is to take it to Jesus. To not be the policeman, but to be the paramedic. Not why did it happen, but how can I help? What's wrong? And to just take it to Jesus, to simply pray simply. We don't have to get all dressed up and go to church. Uh, we just tell Jesus. She did, we don't have to use flowery language. She was also very sensitive to the situation. She didn't want to embarrass anyone. Mary knew the pain of ridicule, being a young mother and suffering the, the, the accusations, the pain of accusations of, of uh, having an illegitimate child. So her example to me in that is be discreet. Don't, don't try to bring the problem out into the open. God has revealed it to you, to me. And he wants us to, he wants to speak to us about it. That's why he showed us. So if we don't know what to do, just simply take it to him. Don't strive to fix it on our own. Um, and don't take it to God and ask him to, could you please approve this plan that I've come up with? Just simple communication. Jesus understands us too. He understands our words, our heart, how we communicate with each other and with him. And he knows how to communicate with us. Sometimes it takes just a whisper. Sometimes it takes a megaphone for me. Uh, but he speaks to us through his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through each other. And sometimes he speaks to us through circumstances. He puts us in a place to show us something that needs to be done uh, that we would recognize, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. In verse 4, Jesus responds, Dear woman, some of your translations say woman. And this is not a Fred Sanford, George Jefferson kind of woman. It's, it's a respectful madam or ma'am. Uh, dear woman. But it also you also see a little bit of separation in that, in that their relationship is changing. He is becoming 
the Son of God in, in that ministry more so than the Son of Mary. Dear woman, why do you involve me? In the Greek, it's literally, what me to you? And it's a turn of phrase in Hebrew that was fairly common. It's used quite a few times in the Bible. And it can be uh, taken a couple of different ways. And we have, we have phrases like that, uh, depending how you say them, uh, they can be taken in a couple of different ways. Like, um, what have I done to you that you should do this to me? Is one way that it could have been taken and has been used, even in Scripture. Uh, when someone was asked to get involved in a matter that he felt was none of his business, he could say to the one asking him, what me to you? Another way is, uh, that it's interpreted is, that's your concern. How am I involved? And that's more what Jesus was saying. Um, and it also, in this, in this what me to you, there's also a separation of relationships. Like, this is not my realm. Jesus is now stepping into the realm of his ministry. And, and this sort of signifies that to his mother. And Mary understood that uh, because he knows Mary. And we ask ourselves sometimes, how does this concern me? Why should this concern me? Um, it really wasn't Jesus' job to provide the wine for the wedding. He was a guest. They were supposed to pr provide it for him. Um, we ask ourselves the same thing. Um, or sometimes we ask those who God has chosen to reveal a need to us. Someone may come up to us and say, there is no wine. And our response is often, well, it's not my job, you know. Uh, but God has now revealed it to you. The question is, what do we do with that information? And again, we can return immediately to Mary's approach and simply pray simply. We don't have to get anxious about it. You say, Jesus, how does this concern me? Um, and since we're not Jesus, perhaps we should ask the person who comes to us with a need uh, if they want to join us in bringing it to Jesus. Maybe they were supposed to bring it to Jesus before they came to us. We don't know, but we can certainly say, let's take it to Jesus together. Without being dismissive, without saying, it's not my job, and it may not be, but God is asking us to step out of our comfort zone often so that his glory can be revealed through us. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. This is not why I came to earth. This is not what I came to do. Um, I didn't come to be a winemaker. I came to be the shepherd for the lost, to lead them home. Sometimes we may feel like, this is not my ministry. This is not what I'm supposed to do. I'm not gifted in this area. I don't feel like God is calling me to this. But we can demonstrate grace. And God will give us the gifts we need for that particular situation um, to bless others. And in so doing, be blessed ourselves. Uh, this certainly wasn't what Jesus came to do. Uh, 
if you recall in Luke uh, 4, 18 and 19, when he went into the uh, synagogue, he read from the scroll in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had come to rescue mankind from sin and death, not to be the caterer. But in turning water to wine, in a real sense, he is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He's he's being gracious and showing favor, especially to this couple, but to this whole town. And being obedient to his mother as well. Jesus said this to Mary to make clear that he was about what he was about to do was an act of grace to demonstrate to his people to his disciples what grace is this principle of grace sometimes we have to go and do something just as a we like to call it a favor but that's where this idea comes from it's something that we go above and beyond in uh, in a particular situation to just give grace Sometimes God gives us divine opportunities or divine appointments, little interruptions from the normal routine, uh, interruptions from the things that we're supposed to be, we think we're supposed to be doing, so that he may use us to bless others, to demonstrate to others the grace of God. Sometimes it can be a flat tire that God will use to slow us down, to get us where he wants us to be, So maybe we can bless the tow truck driver. Maybe he'll give someone else a flat tire to give us the opportunity to help them out. Little things like that. Things as small as a smile can change someone's life. His mother said to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. These are the last words that Mary is recorded speaking in the Bible. Perhaps the best advice or exhortation anyone has ever given to anyone. Do whatever he tells you. So that speaks to me that I need to have a relationship with God to hear what he wants to tell me. What are you telling me? And don't necessarily run out and do what I think I'm supposed to be doing until I know that this is what he wants me to do. we often operate under the, uh, under the idea of don't just stand there, do something. But sometimes God speaks to us, like he spoke to Abraham, don't just do something, stand there. And she's speaking to the servants who are used to waiting on people. And so sometimes we have to wait on the Lord to hear what he wants us to do. Mary was humble about her place and calling. She didn't take charge. She let Jesus be in charge. And with these, her last words, we see that she she just surrenders it to Jesus. On this Mother's Day, we think about Mary and how she's been magnified and uh, her status in the church has been 
exaggerated perhaps, but Mary was humble and she knew her place. She knew her calling. In fact, in the, uh, in the passage in Luke 1 that is called the Magnificat, uh, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She knew that she needed a Savior and a Deliverer. Um, she, was, she was not uh, too proud of her son even. It's a tendency for moms sometimes to, to uh, be overly proud of their kids. But we have to remember that they're, they're God's kids. We have to... Uh, let God have the glory in the, in the stuff that the kids do. It's not, again, it's not about us. We have to take ourselves out of the picture sometimes. But here Mary shows us what deep faith looks like. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. But she knows Jesus. And she knows he's going to do something. Her close relationship with him strengthens her faith. She's had the longest relationship of anyone on earth at this point with Jesus. She trusts him completely in every situation. What a great example for us. Is it even possible? Well, it is possible. God asks us only to do the possible. But do we do it? Do we let God be in control in every situation? So Jesus chooses to intervene and he could have done it, you know, a bunch of different ways. He could have had the, the wine pitchers just continually pour wine, like in the Old Testament with the, with the oil and the flour that never ran out. Instead, in verse 6 it said, there, Nearby there stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So you got 120, 180 gallons of water nearby. Now the, the wedding's been going on at least long enough to run out of wine, so you got to figure they may be half empty because people were obeying the law. They were there for ceremonial cleansing. Uh, before they ate, they had to wash their hands. After they ate, they had to wash their hands uh, by law. They were a symbol, really, of being faithful to the law of God. And, uh, we, of course, we know at, at this time, when Jesus is, is, uh, is here, they were particular about following every aspect of the law. The, the, uh, the teachers of the law just made it very clear and were so particular uh, that they, Jesus... Uh, said, you know, you burden these people with, with a load that they can't carry and you don't even help them. So these, these stone jars are really a symbol of the law. And if you recall, uh, in Exodus, the first time water was changed, Moses uh, and Aaron changed the water into blood. It was a sign of judgment. You know, let my people go. If you don't let them go, okay. We have to, God said for us to send this plague upon your country. And so this, this washing um, reminds them of that. It says uh, in Exodus that even the wooden buckets and stone jars that were filled with water were turned to blood. 
But now we see just how radical and transformational this really was. Jesus was not just changing water into wine. The way in which he did it, and to those who witnessed it, he was transforming the way we enter into a relationship with God by grace. It's not about judgment. It's about joy and grace. And this relationship that we're supposed to have is not out of fear, but it's out of joy and love for God. The, the idea that he loves us so much and wants to bless us. Jesus took this perhaps inopportune opportunity to in a very real way to proclaim that year of the Lord's favor. Now the servants, again, we put ourselves in, into the scene. They've been working all week. It's their job. They've worked, been working hard. They've served all the wine. And now they have to fill the stone jars with water. If they were only half full, that's still 480 pounds of water that they have to carry. If they were completely empty, 720. These servants weren't slackers. They were on the job. Uh, they filled them to the brim. They didn't just say, okay, this is enough. And there's a reason that God had them do that. Whether Jesus didn't say fill them to the brim. He said fill them. Because there was no room to add anything to these jars. They were completely full of water. No one could say, well, Jesus added something and made it look like wine. In fact, Jesus used their hands and their feet and their backs and their sweat to do the work for him so that he couldn't be accused of tampering with it in any way. They were good and obedient servants, and they speak to us in that we are God's hands and feet and backs, and it's our blood and sweat that he wants to use to glorify him in the, in the things that we do to serve others. Uh, being a servant is difficult. Uh, it's hard work, often. Uh, it's tiring. We don't know what to do. We're just tired of being tired. But Jesus is the one who takes that blood and sweat and, and changes it into wine, the wine of joy. These servants were blessed to see the fruit of their labor, in verse 8 it says, Then he told them, Now draw out some of the wine and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. Sometimes God will ask us to do something. He'll show us a need, and we won't know why he's shown it to us. We won't know why he would ask us to get involved. And I really think that sometimes we don't know. We won't see the fruit of our labor this side of heaven. 
We just have to be faithful to, uh, to do it, to take that ladle and bring it to someone, to offer them the grace. Someday we will be blessed to see the fruit of our labor. Even if we think we're just going through the motions of daily life and not really accomplishing anything for the kingdom, there are little things that that God shows us that if we're just faithful to do, he'll use. I think we're going to be surprised uh, by the things that God has has planned for us that we've perhaps done already, just being faithful and and being who we are, who he has created us to be, being Christians, followers of Jesus, asking that question, and it's become sort of a, a cliche, but what would Jesus do? What would Jesus have me do? God watches our faithfulness and obedience, and others are watching too. Sometimes it's not about the person that we're serving, it's about the person who's watching us serve this other person. A testimony by a faith-filled example. Now, if the master had known where the wine came from, the servants knew, he would have likely freaked out. It was just unthinkable to drink from the wash water. It's like drinking the dishwater. Ah! And, and it would just bring uncleanness on you. And it, the, it's something that we read and we, we kind of miss. But to, to drink this water that is supposed to cleanse from the outside, to put it inside, ugh, it's just gross. But this water that was used to rinse the dirt of disgrace from the outside of the body was now the wine of grace that would come to symbolize the blood of Jesus that cleanses our hearts from all unrighteousness. And then the master... Now, the master of the banquet, it, they're not quite clear on all the exact customs of, of these ancient weddings, but it would be someone who was chosen to oversee the banquet, the wedding feast, and evidently, likely, it, was, it would have been like the best man. He it runs like blocker for the groom, you know, and uh, takes care of things for him, uh, stands outside the door while... Uh, They're consummating their marriage over these seven days. Um, He's the one that makes sure that there is wine. And his response is this. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best to last. Now, in a lot of commentaries, this passage is... God has put it on people's hearts to use this passage to teach about marriage and the importance of marriage. And relationship, uh, marriage is certainly a relationship, but there's so many more here. Um, There's a servant relationship and a mother-son relationship and a disciple relationship, and really all the disciples are doing is watching. Uh, Some commentators have used this to talk an awful lot about wine and uh, the evils of, of alcohol. And we do see here that too much wine clearly clouds our judgment. 
and ability to discern what is best. And we see here how people easily take advantage of that inability, that impairment of judgment. And if that's the case, how much more will the devil take advantage of that? So in our relationships, it tells us that we want to be clear-headed. Certainly this master of the banquet was clear-headed. He had a responsibility and wanted to serve the groom, serve the, the whole wedding community by keeping a clear head. He was able to tell, hey, this is the best. Paul warns us in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. It's a downward spiral. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God, be filled, and, and the word there, filled, is filled to overflowing. Be continually being filled. New, fresh filling every day as we pray, as we look to God, um, as we're in his word. Filled to overflowing so that when we come into contact with people, they come into contact with the Holy Spirit as well. People talk about baptism. You know, when you go into the water of baptism, when you come out, and someone hugs you, they get wet. When we're having that close relationship with, with Jesus, when people come in contact with us, they come in contact with Jesus. We want to be filled to overflowing so that we'll have room only for the best. No room for anything less. When we get stagnant in our relationships sometimes, Evaporation happens. Room develops. Things can creep into our lives. We want to we keep it fresh. We want to keep it new. The new wine is the best wine. It's the tastiest. It's the purest. And as I looked at this, I, I find that it's no coincidence that Jesus would begin his ministry by using miraculous signs at a wedding. Jesus loves weddings. He's showing his disciples and using this wedding to demonstrate the relationship that he wants to have with us. In fact, he is inviting us to a relationship and, and to a wedding. In Revelations 19, at the end of the story, nine, Revelations 19, 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're invited he wants us to enter into that intimate, faith-filled, loving, trusting, personal relationship and unity that's symbolized in a marriage. Just in, as a hopeful groom in ancient times would set a cup of wine before his prospective bride as he makes his marriage proposal. Jesus offers us a cup of wine, which is the symbol of his blood, and he asks us to accept his offer. If she wanted to be married to this man, and we know that these were arranged marriages, but she had a choice. If she accepted it, she would drink the wine, and that was the sign. 
and he sets it before us and asks us to accept his offer of salvation and enter into a personal, forever relationship with him. And if the offer is accepted, Jesus says to us, as the groom would say to his prospective bride, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be where, with me so that you may be where I am. Now we know that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And by accepting his invitation into a relationship, we are betrothed. It's a binding relationship. We know that he's coming back for us. So this is the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Three years later, as Jesus was at sharing his last Passover meal with his disciples, he took a cup of wine, he gave thanks and offered it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's heaven, in my Father's kingdom. Now Jesus has revealed to us his glory on the cross and through the empty tomb. And now we can put our faith in him through these even greater miraculous signs. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. He has saved the best for last. We have something to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you know us so well. And even knowing us, you still want to have a relationship with us. You know that we fall so short of your glory, and yet you've sent your Son to cleanse that sin away. Father, I pray if there's anyone who's hurting in a relationship with you, that you just speak to their hearts, set that cup before them. And Father, for, for us who have accepted your free gift, Lord, I pray that you would just continually fill us to help, the, help us to know the wine of joy each day. You understand us, Lord. You know the trials. You know how tiring it is to be on this earth. And yet you have given us hope through the cross, through the empty tomb, through the promise that you're coming back, that we can be with you. Father, I pray that you just speak to us. Help us to see the opportunities that you set before us each day to serve you in simple ways, Lord. And in, and in laborious ways, Lord, we know that you never ask us to do anything that you don't provide us strength to do. You are so good to us, Lord. We thank you for providing us this place that we can just come and hear from you, to hear from each other, to hear from you through each other, Lord. We just lift each other up, Lord, and pray that you would strengthen us 
Help us to encourage each other. Help us to serve each other. Help us to be an example to the world by the way that we love each other, a demonstration of the relationship that you want us to have with you. We thank you for this time. Lord, accept the praises of our hearts as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.